energy and metals are more interrelated and interconnected than ever. How does the coal and the oil price sort of affect gold, silver, precious metals, base metals? We're talking to the pro now. We have Matthew Water, uh, Matthew Water coming on. Stick with us. It'll be definitely very, very interesting. Welcome back to SF Live. My name is Kai Hoffman. I'm the at JR Mining guy on Twitter. And uh, somebody once told me you should never open the ap- a podcast episode with an apology. But if you're watching us on YouTube, apologies for the baseball hat, but there was no way I was taming my hair today. And uh, I'm long overdue for a haircut. So please bear with us. Be polite in the comments. And uh, yeah, it's not going to happen again, maybe once or twice this week until I get an appointment. So apologies for that. But uh, thanks for sticking around. Like, it's going to be an amazing episode that we have lined up for you. We have Matt Water here. Uh, we met him in London last week. Uh, he's dubbed the King of Coal. And uh, you'll find out in a second why. Actually, let me bring him on the screen. Matt, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on. And uh, it's so great meeting you. Oh, you too. I had a great time in London, Kai. And uh, I really appreciate the chance to come on the podcast. Uh, you know, the the more that I uh, more that I talk to folks, uh, you know, most of us analysts tend to sequester ourselves on the metal side or on the energy side. And, uh, you know, really these all of these markets are more connected than ever, uh, you know, especially, I think, going here, going through here over the next decade. So uh, ha- happy to do it. Happy to talk about all those interconnections. Absolutely. I think I'm going to learn a lot today because I'm really weak knowledge wise mm-hmm. on the oil and gas or in particular the coal side. So for me, this is going to be a very mm-hmm. steep learning curve for our conversation. Um, but we've, mm-hmm. before we kick off the conversation, Matt, why don't you run us a bit through your background, sort of establish a bit of a framework, and then uh, we'll we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, you know, I started my career, I mean, coming up on 20 years ago uh, at uh, International uh, Global Consultancy Wood McKenzie. Um, I started off as a coal market analyst uh, for for the small geological firm that Woodmac eventually bought um, and, you know, basically worked my way up through the ranks. I started in central Appalachia, which produced, uh, you know, at the time, uh, you know, a, a pretty fair uh, amount of the world's metallurgical coal, which goes to make steel and uh, a fair amount of high calorific value, very high heat, very low sulfur thermal coal that uh, went to both domestic and export markets. Um, over the years, it became pretty pretty obvious that uh, uh, you know coal consumption globally was was on the decline, most especially on the thermal side. And uh, Wood McKenzie had acquired a metals consultancy uh, called Brook Hunt, which covered you know mainly base metals, uh, a little bit of precious. And it, it occurred to them with with all of this you know med coal expertise that uh, if we added a steel vertical and an iron ore vertical, all all of a sudden we can we can cover. Uh, the industrial. So I, you know, raised my hand and volunteered to to build up all the asset coverage uh, in the Americas for iron ore and steel. And so I kind of vertically integrated myself up the uh, up the supply chain, as it were. Uh, and then uh, you know became a generalist investor, uh, or not investor, generalist uh, researcher. Uh, you know, over the next few years, and uh, got an opportunity to work closely with uh, with Sprott and Rick Rule, uh, who basically trained me up on base metals and precious metals. And so, so now here at this point in time in my career, I'm, uh, I'm this kind of uh, energy metals and mining, uh, you know, I have a lot of broad knowledge across the sectors, but uh, you know, from a, from a deep dive perspective, very well versed on coal uh, and uh, slightly less so on iron, orange, steel, but still pretty deep. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. We, we had a really interesting discussion before we hit the record button as well. So really like, I can't wait till we get to that point in our discussion here on the podcast about mm-hmm. how the metals and, and the energy side are sort of interconnected and more, more than ever you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So really looking forward to that because you seem to have the expertise on both sides. Um, but uh, we, we met in London. So why don't we start mm-hmm. there? Uh, LME week was about uh, 10 days mm-hmm. ago. Um, what brought you to London? Why were you there? And what were some of the key takeaways for you? 
Uh, well, I mean, primarily, uh, you know, I cover all commodities. So, so having an understanding of how all the primary research houses and the banks are approaching, uh, are approaching the metal sector is is critical to to try and try to create a worldview. Uh, you know, set, possibly more importantly from that, uh, over the past year or so, I've gotten to know this this really fantastic community of uh, of mining experts and commodity experts on Twitter. Uh, and this was basically the central junction point of all time and space for that crowd. And a lot of us had hadn't gotten a chance to meet in person, uh, you know, yourself included. Uh, and so, you know, to me, I just viewed this as an opportunity not not only to go over to to London and get, uh, you know, top down views from, uh, you know, from the from the major researchers, but also, uh, you know, to, to connect with folks like yourself so that we can, uh, you know, sort of better communicate the message of how, you know, just how on a knife's edge. Uh, supply is, uh, you know, really for across all commodities here over the next decade. One of the takeaways, like in, in the conversations or in the, in the sessions, I know LME on Friday, I, I didn't attend, but it was more of an indoctrination, I think, because it was about how the LME sort of works. But uh, what were some of the takeaways? Like, what, what did the research houses, like, was there a common denominator for all or like divergent views on certain things? Yeah, I, I think there was. So, you know, by and large, uh, I would characterize the very, very near term view of most research houses as slightly bearish on copper, bearish on nickel. There's a little bit of supply that is supposed to come on, uh, you know, over the next uh, call it six to 12 months that will put the market into a slight surplus, uh, supposedly. Um, th that said, uh, the, the longer term view, I think, over the past over the past couple of years, especially has become a bit muddier. Uh, so to speak, I, I think it's it's come to everyone's attention that ultimately consumers are the ones that are going to make uh, you know most of these decisions at the uh, at the purchase point, right? So they're going to buy you know either an ICE vehicle or an electric vehicle, or they're going to buy uh, a less expensive you know lithium iron phosphate vehicle or a more expensive nickel manganese cobalt powered uh, vehicle. And a lot of these uh, you know, sort of specific choices that the people make are uncertain as we as we go off into the future. Government policy is is dictating the the transition from the top down, but they're not making sort of the the individual uh, you know one on one choices that that would make it more certain for folks. So I, I think all we can say is the desire for governments is to transition away from fossil fuels and more toward a metals based uh, energy economy and uh, the the amount of financing that is uh, that has been put in place uh, to to service that that transition is woefully inadequate. Oh, good point. Good point. We need to talk about that. Maybe we'll table that discussion for just another five minutes before we get to that. But uh, access to capital in mining is uh, a very difficult problem. Um, I'm trying to figure out like where we go. You mentioned a couple of things I want to follow up on. One, copper and nickel mm -hmm. are we are expected to be weaker. Um, mm -hmm. or forecasted to be weaker. Why don't we start there? Because I find that interesting because everybody talks about the EV revolution and everybody says, well, copper is going to be in short supply. What was the main yeah. reason for them to say, okay, copper demand is going to be weaker? Just the recession? Uh, uh, no, I think there were there were a couple of uh, a couple of mines that were returning to production, uh, uh, a couple of projects that were coming on. Nickel, I mean, nickel was the, the big story, was the, the Tsingshan, uh, uh, assets in Indonesia that are going to spit out a whole lot of nickel pig iron, and, and the, the market for nickel is still very stainless steel driven uh, over the over the next you know, two years at least. Anyway, it's not going to be until mid decade or so that uh, when, when battery demand uh, you know for nickel really ramps up. Um, so those were the those were really the two primary factors. And again, like I, I, you know, I should point out that although you know these researchers were projecting a surplus, there is still some uncertainty. 
as to how well supply is going to perform. If supply underperforms uh, in the next six to 12 months, then that surplus doesn't materialize necessarily. So it's um, there's there's a lot yet to be determined. And I think it's incumbent upon analysts like ourselves to be increasingly Bayesian as time goes on. When we get better information on uh, you know, China's reopening or uh, you know, sort of individual uh, individual mine performance. We're going to have to update quickly and and be nimble. I think more nimble with our short term views. Short term views, perfect. It was the word I was going to use next to to start the next question. Because um, we we've been flip flopping a bit through the discussion. I want to stay on energy for for before we talk metals. Um, flip flopping is great because short term views on energy policies. Um, the governments, everybody's been saying, well, we need to go renewable. We're pushing like wind energy, solar. But now governments, specifically in Europe, are flip-flopping, meaning we're ramping up coal power production again. <laughs> we're using nuclear again. Uh, yeah. We're burning, trying to burn a little natural gas because we don't have as much access, but especially coal. We need to talk about right. like I've just been looking up some, trying to look up some number for hard coal on late night uh, energy production in Germany. And uh, it looks like, it's, I don't have the exact number because it's just a chart and I'm trying to read off of it. It looks like 35% mm. of our energy still comes from uh, from coal. Right. So what is the coal discussion like and what do you see in the market? Um, well, the, the, there's, there isn't really much of a coal discussion other than uh, people need baseload power now because the, the supply of gas is, I don't want to say unreliable, but it, we, we aren't exactly certain how much is going to be available in storage at any one point in time. And so uh, the, way, the way that our grid is set up is we have two basic classes of, of power generation. We have, uh, on one hand, baseload generation. Uh, and on the other hand, we have intermittent generation. And in general, when the intermittent, uh, and these are renewables, wind and solar primarily, when the intermittent uh, sources are uh, are dispatching, uh, you have to defer to them. You have to pull all of that power into the market, and then you have to adjust uh, the the base load uh, behind it in order to keep the grid, uh, you know, at a at a constant uh, at a constant charge. Now, naturally, when when wind dies off, um, you know, during the day, and solar begins to ramp up, and vice versa at night. You need to be able to ramp up baseload generation to fill those gaps anyway. Uh, in the past, we used peaker plants to do that that were primarily natural gas. Uh, you know, we did the same thing for for periods where demand exceeded what we expected it to be. We could draw more on natural gas, you know, satisfy that demand, uh, sort of go from there. But in in recent years, the uh, the preference for governments has been to rely uh, increasingly on natural gas. And in the case of Germany, in particular, that meant relying on on Russian supply coming from Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, and from the Southern Pipelines as well. Now, obviously, over the past year, that's become an issue. So, so now we're, we're faced with the challenge of uh, supplying, uh, supplying these European plants uh, without Russian gas or without reliable Russian gas. Uh, and the truth is, although supply chains can adjust, uh, you, do have to make, uh, you do have to make the investment uh, in both uh, the new, new operations and the pipelines and the LNG export facilities and the LNG uh, import facilities on the other end. So it's, it's not something that, that is particularly elastic from, uh, you know, from a supply response standpoint. Um, and if you don't have enough gas, then you have to move down uh, the, uh, the other types of baseload generation, which are coal and nuclear uh, and diesel. Uh, if you if you if your nuclear plants are running full bore, then you need more coal. And you know, coal over the years has had this uh, you know very sort of top down uh, you know uh, demand destruction that's come from the government level. And uh, supply has behaved accordingly. So we have mines that have shut down here in the United States that are largely never to return. 
And so when when the world all of a sudden asks for more coal, the U.S. has historically been the swing supplier to the world. Well, we can't ramp up. And in addition to that, we have a labor shortage, not just at the mines, but we also have a labor shortage at the railroads. So the ability to, to even produce the coal is limited. Then the ability to get the coal to the port is limited. Uh, so that means either uh, we need more coal from Australia or from South Africa. And truth be told, those countries are going through very similar supply dynamics. So it's a it's a complicated uh, picture that uh, uh, honestly we need to think about from the from the top level policy and adjust uh, over the medium term in order to address. Interesting. As I said, I don't know much about the coal space. That's why for me this is a huge learning experience as well. Um, you you mentioned supply like constraints, but it doesn't sound like there is a deficit. It's more of a bottleneck getting the coal, like the supply to the end user. Um, what, has, what has that done to the coal price? And do you see the, a de-bottlenecking happening anytime soon? Well, without, without Russia, there, there is a sort of a supply deficit. Uh, and it's, you know, maybe deficit's not the right word. It takes times for supply chains to adjust, right? So, uh, you know, Russian coal typically came into Europe. They provided about somewhere between 50 to 70% uh, of Europe's coal imports, and the rest went to a smattering of, uh, you know, Northeast Asian, Southeast Asian countries, uh, you know, a fair amount went to India. Uh, now, Europe's taking ostensibly no Russian coal. They bought as much as they could, uh, you know, before the the, the sanctions went on, uh, and now they're, they're stuck with trying to find coal from other regions uh, of the planet. Meanwhile, sorry, Russians, I just hit my desk there, Russian supplies adjusted. Uh, it's going more into India, into China, uh, into places that uh, are have a have a let's say better working relationship with regard to uh, those sanctions. They either don't care about them, or the, the U.S. understands you know India's and Russia's sort of complex relationship. But uh, the type of coal that went into Europe in particular was very high calorific value uh, thermal coal, uh, and about 50 million tons worth. And the problem with that particular grade is that there isn't 50 million tons in the rest of the world. To step in and replace it, not this year, not next year, uh, ostensibly not ever. I mean, it's connected to either operations that can't ramp up in the United States and won't, uh, or unlikely uh, project ramp ups in in Australia. Uh, it's it's just there's you can't replace the quality of coal necessary to supply those plants uh, with the with the base load of uh, of supply that we have basically. What do your forecasts say? How much longer do you think we're going to be in that supply demand sort of deficit situation based on energy policies that you're seeing being thrown around in the world right now, especially in Europe. Um, how much longer do you see that play out? Uh, currently, I mean, I think it plays out until the, the gas issue is solved, right? Um, until until there is a solution for Russian gas, uh, I, think, I think Europe is going to have this problem ongoing uh, every year. And I think over the, over the medium term, that kind of puts a bid under LNG prices which in turn uh, puts a bid under coal prices. So I think that whole complex of um, uh, you know, gas and coal and, and power is gonna be comparatively highly priced uh, over a few cycles. And I know there's, there's talk about how, you know, we, you know, Europe actually did a great job stockpiling gas and coal in advance of the winter. Um, you know, the question is now that energy prices have come back down, the TTF has come back down because you don't need to buy as much. It's you know, November now and temperatures are actually pretty warm. Uh, but uh, our industrial uh, company is going to restart in Germany, which are really integral to the German economy. I venture to say they probably will. And if they restart too fast, then all of a sudden you're going to have a bigger draw on gas, I think, than than most forecasts expect. I just I, I don't I don't think the problem is solved by filling up storage tanks to the top. 
I think the problem is solved by uh, actually correcting and, and uh, improving the ability of, to get gas uh, into into the region and out of and out of other regions, I guess. Very, really informative. You mentioned big companies. Energy prices are an issue as well, not just access to energy. Um, but I want to talk about like what, we interviewed Doomberg here on the channel before as well. He's a great mm -hmm. Twitter follow, great newsletter, and we were talking about gas reserves and Germany sitting right around ninety eight percent, I believe, right now. Um, can mm -hmm. you explain to us again what that really means, and is that enough to get us through the winter? How much do we need, and how much do we need to find from elsewhere? And not just um, Germany, by but, the way. Sorry, like I keep coming back to Germany because I'm sitting here in Frankfurt. So apologies for that. No, that, that's sure. I mean, Germany has compared to a lot of other areas in, in Europe uh, a, a fair amount of storage. So I think for Germany, it means Germany's probably going to be okay. The question is, what happens to these, um, you know, to these to these other areas of Europe that don't have as robust a, a gas storage as Germany does? Can can the product that Germany has actually be shipped and uh, you know mark those mark those shipments to market? I, I don't know the answer to that. And then the, the other factor, of course, is weather. And I, I'm I'm certainly not a weatherman. My track record of predicting the weather is uh, unblemished by success, as uh, as Rick Rule would say. So uh, so there there are a lot of factors that go into actually trying to prognosticate that. I expect uh, I expect hydrocarbons to be tight. Uh, I'll just I'll just say that and kind of kind of leave it at that for uh, for the time being. As soon as the bid comes back into the market, uh, energy prices go back up from where they were. So as an investor now, look, looking at this space, let's talk about how how you would play. Like, don't give financial advice. We're just here for financial mm -hmm. education. But how would you play the sector right now, and or how are you playing it? And uh, what makes sense? Are you buying coal stocks, for example, and uh, like some of the the more delicate instruments are, are maybe a little far fetched. But any stocks, mm -hmm. like, or, and oh, sorry, he's like, and I want to get stock names. But how are you playing the sector? Let's generalize the question. Well, I mean, it's it, I'm most comfortable talking about coal. I, I do have uh, some 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 equities that are exposed to to European energy prices. Uh, I have less of them now because of, you know we knew the price was going to peak in summertime. We knew storage was going to get reasonably well filled, uh, and now we're we're waiting for that inflection for for weather to get worse, and you know we can size those back up. But mostly, I'm uh, I'm planning it through coal because coal is literally the one commodity that is uh, absolutely supply constrained, and I'm concentrating. Uh, my exposure uh, primarily in high calorific value, uh, you know, uh, high heat coal suppliers. So for for me, that means in the United States, uh, Consol Energy, uh, ticker CEIX, uh, a little bit of uh, Arch Coal, uh, ticker ARCH, uh, and then in Australia, my my two primary holdings are White Haven Coal, uh, ticker WHC.AX, uh, and uh, New Hope. Uh, which is NHC, I believe, uh, .ax as well. Uh, so th that's on the thermal side. On the metallurgical coal side, uh, metallurgical coal has a different uh, sort of restocking cycle uh, than 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 thermal coal does. Uh, usually, steel producers come in to restock kind of uh, in the late fall and like early winter, and then again in the early spring to like middle spring. So we have these uh, you know periods in. Uh, November, December, where people are coming into the market to make sure they're stocked up for next year. Uh, and then also sort of in March and April, uh, especially the Chinese, after the Chinese New Year celebration is done, typically they come back into the market, uh, you know, get get some quarterly contracts done to make sure they're well supplied. Um, and right now, so metallurgical coal prices are are fairly resilient. Uh, there's also a, one segment of, of metallurgical coal that can cross over into the thermal market. Uh, that's typically coming from the U.S. Uh, that's a high volatile A coal, we call it, um, that can 
that can cross markets. That's primarily uh, produced by a company called Alpha Metallurgical Resources, which just reported today pretty good, um, uh, pretty good earnings. And then, um, and then also I should mention uh, another sort of diversified producer, uh, Peabody Energy uh, ticker BTU. Um, which is probably the one I think that's poised over the next, over the course of like 23 and 24 uh, to have the sort of outsized returns that a lot of their peers have had over the course of the past uh, two years. BTU, because you've been tweeting about it actually today. I think I, I looked, I looked up the chart and they've already doubled for the year. They're up 150%, I think already. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, I think there's at least another call it 40 to 50% upside without, really without prices doing that much prices could even decline from there the, the the interesting thing about about peabody is that they have um they have a covenant in one of their in on one of their bonds that prevents them from initiating a shareholder return program until they either negotiate with the uh with the bondholders uh, or alternately just pay off their debt entirely which uh, is is certainly a possibility here over the next call it six months so once that happens, then, uh, you know, they have this big cash position saved up uh, that, you know, when when it gets when it gets released to shareholders, I think will look like a pig going through a python, provided that they they don't uh, make any big acquisitions or plans to grow production or uh, and those are the types of things that we were talking about last week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been chatting with one of the friends we met together in London just before ahead of our conversation here. He's like, hey, you got any questions for Matt that I, that I can ask him? He just sent me one while you were chatting. And uh, it, oh, yeah. it, fit, it fits before I, before I move on with the conversation, just sort of wrap up on coal. He's like, can you own coal with a clean and green conscious? I mean, I can. I mean, I'm I'm probably the only like very liberal guy who who talks about this market pretty openly. Uh, a lot. And, you know, the, the fact is for me, I've, I've been around the industry for a long time. I have a lot of friends in the industry. Uh, and for me, it's, you know, I, I agree largely with the, with the notion that, you know, we've spent a hundred years creating energy by burning stuff. Wouldn't it be better to do something else for a while? Um, I, you know, I, I tend to agree with that, with that sentiment. Um, but that said, you have to have a plan to get from here to there. And that plan isn't going to be you know, a 10 year plan or a 20 year plan, this is going to happen over the course of a generation. I think. Um, and so the, the most difficult thing to for governments to do is to succession plan from from one administration to the other, especially during these really polarized times where you just have this vacillation back and forth from conservative to liberal and so forth. And and so I think I think it's incumbent upon you know, analysts and, and folks from the industry to sort of articulate that. Look, we, we know we can't get there directly from here. So instead of that, why don't we take a, a reasonably, uh, you know, well-paced uh, decarbon uh, decarbonization uh, plan for the next four to five years. And as the technology becomes available, as we finance these mines, as we understand how much more material we need, uh, then we can accelerate that, I think, as we get into the, the, the early to mid 2030s uh, in the 2040s. Uh, but that's, of course, that's not happening because that's winning elections and, and those sorts of things. But I, I do think the project management of the energy transition, the pace of decarbonization uh, is probably, I mean, to our sector, the, the most important uh, thing to, most important issue to, to get a handle on uh, as an analyst, as an investor, uh, as everything. And it, and it changes, it has changed so much in just the last two years. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, your, your answer actually just opened the door to the question I wanted to get to next. So without making a hard cut or anything, um, it sure. is talking about like planning for the next steps and sort of it, it comes mm -hmm. with investing. 
like as well you need to invest a lot of money and uh, we had that conversation before we hit record is like it comes down to investing southern debt uh, sovereign debt not southern debt <laughs> sovereign debt and uh, also it comes down back to some money principles Right, uh, Inflation Reduction yeah. Act, four hundred billion dollars, I think, in subsidies. Some of the companies are being flooded with cash. Like, wh what are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that, and like, how is that connected there? Okay, uh, this is this is a pretty big topic. I mean, the the way that the way that I think this is going to go is that to have an energy transition that is at all accelerated is going is going to require uh, help from uh, from governments. It's going to require subsidies. It's going to require. Uh, it's going to require a lot of debt. Uh, and, you know, that's that's debt that you know, our, our kids are going to have to pay for. So the faster we go, the more debt that we that we incur at uh, what are, you know, comparatively ele elevated levels relative to future inflation. Right. And so th that's really the concern is like if we go too fast, uh, are we going to incur so much sovereign debt uh, that we're uh, uh, you know, that we're in that we're in turn going to have a, a crisis as to how to how to unload that? Um, you know, and, and for me, I think that from an, from an investment perspective, if I take a top level, uh, sort of top down view of that, that means that, you know, kind of going forward, we have to be, uh, I think you have to be invested in some, some form of hydrocarbons. I'm, I'm comfortable with coal and a little bit of oil and gas at the very least on a seasonal basis to, you know, refined products, uh, mostly as well. Uh, when we head down into like the plastics, petrochemicals, I'm less, uh, less enamored with those industries for for at least probably six months, just from a cyclical perspective. Uh, and then we have to we have to be in, targetedly invested in the metals that we know are going to participate the most. I think that means copper. We can't electrify anything without copper. Um, so we have to take advantage of these periods where we may have a surplus, uh, and then be, begin to build up positions on you know not just established uh, you know names like Freeport, Macquarie, etc., but but also, uh, I think I think you have to pay a lot of attention to to Robert Friedland's projects. Uh, you know, both Ivanhoe uh, uh, Ivanhoe Mines and Ivanhoe Electric uh, are pretty pretty interesting to me. And then the 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 the, the exploration companies who are going out and finding these new deposits because we have to do more than that. I mean, one of one of my largest holdings has been Philo Mining uh, over the past year. I mean, by by now that that the the drill bit can tell all of the story that it needs to tell uh, for that. But that's um. So I, I like copper over the longer term. Uh, I, I like nickel. Eventually, I want to get past kind of absorbing the supply from Sing Shan before, um, uh, you know, before I go big on it. Um, you know, I think uh, I think we do see a, a you know return of demand for integrated circuits, semiconductors, those kinds of things that has iterative impacts on tin later on in the cycle. I think twenty four. Uh, so I'm I'm largely taking the the basket approach with regard to the materials themselves, and then. For the knock-on effects, I think it. I think it. Um, I think we need to have precious metals positions. I think we need to be invested in, uh, in gold. And and if you're, you know, more of the torquey mindset, then then silver for sure. Because uh, if we're similarly, if we're not exploring for enough uh, metals and hydrocarbons to to manage the transition, then all, all of this, uh, it's it's all going to show up eventually in sovereign debt. And we're not exploring for enough gold and silver either from that from that perspective. So to me, these are all interconnected. Um, you know, some, you know, precious metals, probably two second or third, third order effect uh, from the energy side, but um, uh, their natural resources, I think, are going to have a, a, a really impressive decade. And uh, I think it's I think it puts folks like us in good positions to to talk about these issues, both from the from the policy level down uh, and then from the fundamentals up. 
fundamental stuff, but just uh, China and, and Canada sort of seem to be having a dif- dispute over lithium projects because Canada, Canada told a few companies or it, it, yeah, companies sort of investors to divest of their holdings in certain companies. And mm-hmm. China said, well, there's, uh, there's going to be retaliation, right? So uh, I, I put out a tweet yesterday. I think resource nationalism is going to be one of the themes for the remainder of the decade. How does that factor in into your like forecasting and your, your prognosis as well? Oh, well, again, now we're getting into the ge- the geopolitical side. And and again, there, you know, my, my track record isn't particularly good. I'm not a very good geopolitical analyst because, uh, I mean, let's face it, people don't uh, people don't always behave rationally. And uh, governments as a collection of people uh, certainly don't always behave rationally either. If you have a lot of bad advice and your leaders take that bad advice uh, and uh, codify it and cement it into policy, uh, you know, then then bad things are going to happen. I mean, China. Let's take the, the you know the EV EV market in China. China's basically forcing EV adoption. Uh, you know, here over the next um, uh, you know over the next few years, and they have some of the resources to to be able to pull that off. Um, but you know what what happens? You know, ten years down the road, after a centrally planned economy has has done that, and and that that investment happens to turn out to be wrong. What? How are they going to do? Are they going to ha- are they going to be able to backtrack fast enough to to get enough uh, you know hydrocarbon related vehicles uh, produced? Uh, how how are they going to react to that? There's, I, I think there are too many questions uh, that uh, that that don't have answers to make a, a real definitive uh, um, you know forecast as to. Uh, well, I mean, uh, as no. to how any of this plays out specifically, um, I, I think you can just sort of broadly say that, well, we have a molecule shortage uh, that is primarily supply-driven. It's not necessarily demand-driven yet. Um, and until then, uh, it's 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 much better to be, I think, in the extractive industries than in, uh, you know, other, you know, interest rate-sensitive um, uh, sectors like that. Yeah, no, very good point. Interest rate sensitive, because gold seems to be interested in interest rate-sensitive as well, quite a bit, actually. Silver, less so, more of a tech metal, battery metal. I think that's more of a metal also closer to the energy transition as well. Um, Matt, I know you cover a wide range of commodities as well. You're an expert, obviously, mm-hmm. on the on the energy products, oil, gas, coal. Uh, any any metal or any element that we haven't talked about sort of that uh, is being forgotten? You you hinted at tin earlier. Is there any other like metal like tin? I'm thinking scandium or anything else we should be paying attention to? I mean, I for for me, not so much. I mean, I'm primarily, you know, an energy metals mining and industrials analyst. So that's primarily where my focus is. Uh, there's there's enough. I mean, uh, goodness, there's there's enough to cover in uh, uh, just in the base metal side uh, to to span an entire career. Um, I will say that most of the analysts that I saw in London tended to be very reasonably bullish zinc. I think for the next uh, you know for the next six to twelve months, uh, which looks like from a supply perspective may 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 hold some merit. Um, I've I've rarely invested in uh, you know any zinc producer other than tech. So, uh, you know, my my uh, my palette is relatively limited there, but certainly for 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 those in your audience who are familiar with, uh, you know, ex- exploration companies that are related to it, uh, you know, they'll they'll have a a better better palette of, of ways to express that trade than I. <laughs> no, fantastic. I was just trying to get a sense of like, cause there's always that one element that you never hear about, and all of a sudden it explodes price wise, and it costs thirty thousand dollars a ton, right? So yeah, I think I I, I think the <laughs> 
I think the thesis behind that is that galvanized lines were a little bit behind uh, due to kind of restrictions in steel production uh, due to energy prices. And as producers play a catch up a little bit, uh, that uh, that's actually going to drive demand here in the near term, which I, I think stands to reason. Um, I'm, I'm not particularly bullish steel in the steel space uh, at the moment, post call it March, April, May. Um, I, I really question the ability of, of, China to to both reopen and to uh, you know really fund this next round of investment. I think I think twenty twenty three is going to be a tough year for for steel. In in the U S. we're a little bit insulated because we have these twenty five percent tariffs, right? But um, as as the steel industry goes, you know by and large, uh, you know so goes zinc. But there's um uh, you know much like semiconductors, you know in twenty twenty one, there's when you have to catch up, then uh, you know demand for the raw materials goes up, and uh, I think there's I think there's some merit to that argument. Absolutely. No, fantastic. Matt, any, any closing words, anything we should pay attention to? I was going to ask you about price targets, but it's kind of tough with price targets and oil, gas and natural gas and thermal coal, met coal, right? So yeah. have to put you on the spot there, Matt. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I think, I think if I had any, any closing remarks, it'd be, they'd be broad ones. When, when I tend to go to, to metals conferences, for instance, uh, you know, and we see these, uh, uh, you know, kind of aggressive projections of, you know, how much, how many EVs we're going to produce. Uh, well, if you actually stacked up the, uh, the 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 auto producers' forecasts of EV production, and then you back calculated, um, uh, you know, the, the copper intensity, the nickel intensity, li uh, lithium intensity, etc., we we only have enough material to produce about forty percent of vehicles going out through twenty thirty. So so those those demand projections may be, uh, you know, maybe a bit aggressive at this time if we take all those uh, all those uh, auto automakers at their word, right? But but really, the I, I think the the pullback is that, you know, with these with these big demand projections, you have to wonder where the energy is going to come from, where the diesel is going to come from, if we're simultaneously not going to invest in hydrocarbons, right? And that to me has been kind of a miss with some of those, um, uh, you know, with some of the forecasts. And then conversely, when I go to to energy conferences and we see these, you know, kind of massive buildouts of you know renewables and solar over you know, 10, 20, 30 years, I look at that and I go, well, where is the copper coming from? Where are the metals coming from? So I, I really think it's 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 important for both of those disciplines, for energy, uh, for the energy sector and for the metal sector to be uh, more communicative, you know, amongst analysts and and uh, and investors going forward than at any other point in time in my career. Like the, the more knowledge that we share, the more awareness we all have uh, of how, you know, changes in downstream demand are factors are funneling back through to the to the upstream supply chain, I think the better we'll be able to communicate to hopefully to governments uh, on on what the most effective policy is going to be uh, going forward. And I think that puts us in a really interesting position to um, uh, you know to to really influence thought on the matter. So uh, that's that's kind of that's kind of where where I sit and uh, I just something I'm hopeful we can we can be. Uh, uh, positive contributors to in the future. Fantastic. Now, let, let me close on an anecdote. Maybe you have a comment for that because I had an interesting phone call with a German government official in Vancouver yesterday or last week, sorry. And mm -hmm. um, he's, he had a fire lit under his butt to find resource projects. And I'm not kidding. Like, he, he's the general consul in Vancouver. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, fairly high up, one below the ambassador in Canada. But, like, he's aggressively looking for, for projects to introduce to his, like, I wouldn't even say investors, but to the government. And asking Kai, what can we do to to make this happen so we can secure resources? This is the first time I actually took any of this serious. I've been looking at lithium projects since, like zinc. I've been always following 
through common friend and uh, been looking at some certain things but uh now the, the fire has been lit because now as you said earlier in the conversation it's top down it's being yeah. shoved down and now the government woke up six months ago it feels like Mm-hmm. And is pushing that down. Like maybe if you have a la- one last comment on that, I, I find that really, really interesting because I haven't heard that before. Yeah, I mean, we're we're basically trying to figure out how to change minds at the policy level. I, I think one thing that one thing that can happen, for instance, is to find the right sort of corporate relationships uh, that cross technologies. Right? Uh, if we think about, you know, one of my verticals is steel. There are a lot of steel plants that are, you know, tearing down blast furnaces and building electric arc furnaces. Uh, and that's great for for direct carbon reductions because you're not using coke, uh, you know you're you're not uh, you're not uh, you're not as reliant on on direct carbon reduction uh, as a result. But when you when you fire up that electric arc furnace and you and you're in a place say like Pittsburgh, uh, well the the grid the power grid that you hook it up to is primarily a coal fired power grid, um, and so. It's, it's great for direct reductions, but it's not great necessarily for indirect reductions because that's going to draw a lot more power. I think there are opportunities to pair, uh, you know, small modular nuclear reactors. We haven't really talked about uranium or the nuclear industry, which I think is, I think is really an interesting bridge fuel, uh, you know, to kind of get enough base load to, if we're going to ramp down coal, maybe ramp up nuclear or maybe pair some of these small, small modular reactor projects with uh, an industrial project. And then combine, try to find the right politician or the right uh, the right person in in a position of influence within government to hold to hold it up, particularly to to you know to to my liberal side of the aisle as a as an example of like look look what we can do, look what we can do if we get the the, the right people talking to one another who can come together and create a project that's going to benefit the community, that's going to lower carbon emissions, uh, that's going to you know send demand into. Uh, you know, a, a commodity, uranium, which we, we can go get a little bit more supply of. We may have to adjust, you know, enrichment facilities. We may have to, uh, you know, uh, you know, eliminate some red tape. But um, this is something that we can do right here, right now. And I, I think me uh, personally, I, I think those kinds of ideas and those kinds of messages when you when you go out to voters, I think things like that are going to resonate because you're going to be showing up with solutions as opposed to rhetoric. Um, and uh, that's the kind of stuff that matters to me. I think that matters to people. And I, I think it's a better, it's a much better story to tell there. It's jobs at the, at the bottom line. You're not taking away jobs. You're adding jobs. Like this, these are the kinds of stories I think we need to, to encourage to happen, uh, be that through corporate development or, uh, you know, lobbying or direct relations with government or, or just through, you know, conversations like these where we're, uh, you know, evangelizing, I think the participation in an industry that's going to be, you know, if not the most important, one of the most important uh, of the coming decade and of the energy transition in general. So uh, that's that's kind of what I think when, um, uh, you know, when, when those kinds of questions are asked. No, I fully agree with you, Matt. We're on the same side there of the medallion. Fantastic. Matt, where can we find more of you? Fantastic conversation. Like, to, to John Hall for a second, where can we find more? Uh, well, I'm I'm really active on Twitter. I'm at MF Warder. That's uh, Matthew F is in uh, Finley, which is my middle name. <clears throat> Uh, MF Warder uh, on Twitter. Um, uh, my company, Seawolf Research, like I don't, I have too much work right now. And if I had a website, I'd have way more uh, than I could probably handle. But um, uh, the uh, Seawolf Research also goes to my calendar. If people want to uh, set up a time to talk, um, then, uh, then then we can do that. Uh, but uh, but Twitter is usually the best place to get a hold of me. Uh, and uh, we can go from there. 
Awesome. No, I highly encourage everybody to reach out to Matt. Like, I really enjoyed our conversations last week in London as well. Really appreciate your time today. Amazing uh, conversation. Pre- pre- appreciated chatting with you too, and appreciated that Indian food we got to eat the other day. Oh, it was fantastic. Was yeah, we, we found that by accident. Like, you've been there before, but uh, we stumbled across one of them. It's, oh, phenomenal. That doll, don't get me started. Red- Ready to do it again anytime, buddy. Anytime. Just let me know when you come out of this neck of the woods again. So we'll do that. Absolutely. And uh, everybody else, thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. I think I, I learned a lot. I just don't think I know I learned a lot. So let, let us know what you think. Leave a comment below. Don't comment just on the base cap, base, base cap here. Um, I do apologize for that again, but I'm not going to lift my hat and show you why I'm wearing it. And uh, But follow us on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, hit that like and subscribe button, and to share the video with your friends. Uh, I think it was super informative, and I think more people should know about it, what is happening on the other side of the coin, and uh, what we're up to here. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll be back with lots more content soon.